We're driven by the search for better. But when it comes to hiring, the best way to search for a candidate isn't to search at all. Don't search match with Indeed. Indeed is your matching and hiring platform with over 350 million global monthly visitors, according to Indeed data, and a matching engine that helps you find quality candidates fast. Ditch the busy work. Use Indeed for scheduling, screening, and messaging so you can connect with candidates faster. Leveraging over 140 million qualifications and preferences every day, Indeed's matching engine is constantly learning from your preferences, so the more you use Indeed, the better it gets. Join more than 3.5 million businesses worldwide that use Indeed to hire great talent fast. And listeners of this show will get a $75 sponsored job credit to get your jobs more visibility at Indeed.com slash BlueWire. Just go to Indeed.com slash BlueWire right now and support our show by saying that you heard about Indeed on this podcast. That's Indeed.com slash BlueWire. Terms and conditions apply. Need to hire? You need Indeed. Arsenal FC completed its collection of right backs. This is the Arsenal Vision Postmatch Podcast. My name is Alex Smith, the Blackman Twitter, Yankee Gunner. Yeah, the window's closed, but in our effort to win the trophy, and we discussed what the trophy is, the trophy is the club that has the most right backs. We did get a right back. Now, to be fair, we lost one. Hector Bellerin leaving, and he will be missed uh, emotionally, if not necessarily uh, on the pitch. But we did uh, sign Tomiyasu on deadline day, and so here's what's going to happen. We're going to have a very long discussion about that player, because that's the news. We will have a bit of a discussion about the news about Granite Xhaka um, being unvaccinated and not being allowed to play with Switzerland and, and handle that as delicately as we can. And then grade the window. This is about grading the window. But first, uh, this podcast is engaging in something for the month of September that is, I think, personally, the most important thing we do. And that is giving back. Giving back to the Arsenal Foundation so that they can help all the wonderful people whose lives they improve, both in North London and beyond. And we are already at 70% of our goal, 14,000 pounds in the span of just the three days since we announced this launching. Our goal is to get to 20,000 at the end of September. Let's smash that. Let's double that. Let's triple that. I'm going to be reading the names of every single person who donated over the course of this month, starting with the next podcast. And I'm going to be thanking you individually if I can because it just means the world to us. So here's what we're going to do. We're going to have an 18-minute conversation with Drew Tyler from the Arsenal Foundation because I want you to hear what they're doing. You know what the club is doing on the pitch. Maybe you don't love it, (laughs) to be fair. We know about that. We immerse ourselves in that. We tear each other apart over that at times. But I want you to hear what they're doing that makes people's lives better in the name of this club we love because, my God, that is special. So please go to Arsenal Vision Podcast. Dot com donate forward slash donate or click donate it takes you right to the just giving platform there's no platform fee tax deductible no fees at all just give it right to the arsenal foundation you can also go to justgiving.com forward slash fundraising forward slash arsenal vision a little harder to get to that but you can google it if you want or you can just go to our website arsenalvisionpodcast.com forward slash donate and it'll take you right to the platform um 
I just uh, overwhelmed, uh, overwhelmed by the response. I know it means the world to everybody. Uh, Tim won't be on this pod because of the Tobin Heath news, which is exciting, but he's covering that. He'll be on the next one. Thank you so much. So, so much. So, uh, one thing that I do want to point out is just, you know, look, these, these are times when we are sort of at each other's necks, at each other's throats a bit over Arsenal opinions. And I know that I get a little difficult on Twitter. To be fair, I tell you to block me there. I hope that we do get to meet in person because I am someone who, no matter how annoying my opinions might be, no matter how much we might upset one another on social media, I'd love to, you know, toast to Arsenal, toast to each other. I'm a hugger, so probably give you a hug and just say, I I love you for being a part of this because I really do. Even if sometimes it, you know, it turns into an argument. So with that having been said, I'm going to turn it over to myself and to Drew Tyler to tell you about the Arsenal Foundation. And then 18 minutes later, you'll get the the main long discussion on Tomiyasu, Shaka, and the window being graded. So thanks again. Uh, I hope you'll give generously if you're able, of course, and uh, more from us to come. And now it's my great pleasure to introduce Drew Tyler. Drew works with the Arsenal Foundation and specifically with Coaching for Life. I'm so excited to discuss this project and to be part of this fundraiser and for Drew to have given him, uh, given his time generously. Obviously we are all familiar with the Arsenal foundation as a contributor to the local community in London and the important work that's done there. And I think everybody is appreciative of that work, but Arsenal is a global organization. There's a global community of fans. And I think Arsenal has done a great job taking up the responsibility of serving that global community. And this is a big part of that. So we're going to talk with Drew now about that project specifically. Drew, it's it's a great pleasure to have you on. Yeah, thanks very much for having me. It's a, it's a pleasure to be here. So the first thing I just want to ask you is about how this project came to life. So for people who want to know, Coaching for Life is something that the Arsenal Foundation created with a very specific goal and a purpose. So can you explain a little bit about what the mission was? And then we can talk a bit about the Zattery Refugee Camp and the people that it helps. Yes, definitely. So we've been in uh, in partnership with Save the Children for for a number of years. Um, and we've, as you said, we're a, we're a global organization. We've, we support our global community. And we've, in the past, we've built football pitches in uh, in refugee camps in Iraq, in the slum communities in Jakarta, uh, and we had some uh, built some pictures in in the refu- in Zatari refugee camp in Jordan. And in 2018, this this project we we used to go over and support some of these uh, uh, the groups in these pictures. I, I've been to Iraq and Indonesia before Coaching for Life became what it is now. Uh, and we'd go over and we'd work with the kids, give them some couple of days of coaching and work with the coaches there and then we'd we'd come back and there was an ambition to to make it bigger and and to really show the power of football and what football can do for these communities and the people living in these communities and that's where that's where coaching for life uh, as it is now was born I guess and we've saved the children we've developed this program where we're aiming to develop resilience in these children and some of these children who have experienced a really, a really difficult start to their life and have experienced things that children should, should never have to experience. Yeah. I mean, I think a lot of us who are parents, uh, that includes myself, even privileged parents, even parents in really good circumstances, circumstances far beyond what the children at the Zattery refugee camp would be able to connect with have seen how something like COVID, for example, can negatively impact 
young people and going through a hardship can negatively impact them and having something to look forward to, having an activity that can engage them in uh, creative ways, in motivational ways, in positive ways can totally transform their outlook. And that's for children who aren't going through the kind of hardship that, that these children are. I want to just give a little background to, to give a sense of the scope of, of how this is helping. So in Jordan, the Zattery Refugee Camp is home to almost 80,000 people, I believe. And you can correct me if I get my numbers wrong. 40,000 of which are children. Um, that, that's like the population of Dover, just of children in a refugee camp. And I believe you know, most of these children, and again, correct me if I have this wrong, are somewhat sort of wind up there as a result of the hardship in Syria, neighboring Syria. And, you know, I'm kind of curious what the conditions in day-to-day life is like. And, you know, I, I can only imagine what they went through before coming to the refugee camp. What is the sort of day-to-day situation like for them there? Yeah, so the Zatari is as vast an environment as you as you could imagine. Um, they live in kind of caravans i guess so they're, they're not they're not in tents they're in these kind of caravans and they've made a, a somewhat of a comfortable environment for themselves but the place is so vast it's like when you there you can stand at the highest point of the uh of the refugee camp and just see for absolute miles and miles and it's like you said it's incredible to think how many people are living in that in those conditions um it kind of highlights the importance of our spaces and our five football pitches that we've got there because you can pick out the green hmm. you can pick out the green of those uh those football pitches uh you can pick out the red of save the children and arsenal kind of alongside each other um so yeah the the, the a lot of the children there have obviously as you mentioned they've, they've come from syria and they're in this they've, they've come there not not expecting to be there for for 10 years as it has been now. Um, and yeah, they have, their conditions are not, not easy in, in the winter. Obviously it's extreme and in, and in the height of summer it's extreme and the conditions are difficult. Um, but yeah, hopefully we provide some, a real sense of, um, purpose for these, for the kids and their families and, and give them something to really look forward to. It's just crazy to think, I mean, these are young people who have lived through the kind of violence and death and destruction that most people will never see. And then on top of that, they get to this refugee camp with the hope of escaping that. And then you have the COVID pandemic. You know, I can't imagine that that was a particularly easy situation there. Has that been something that impacted the refugee camp? How have they been able to handle that? Better than I initially feared. Well, that's good. To be honest. Um (laughs) It, it it didn't get in there for a, for quite a while, and then um, and then it kind of as we were seemed to be recovering, it they started to have some cases, but it, it's not been as as bad as as I think people feared that it could have been if it did get into uh, into that environment. But yeah, well, I, I think the combination the of being outside a lot and a lot of young people, I mean, you at least have some positive environments to help prevent a spread there. I think it's just. You know, when you think about how children adapt, they're very adaptable. They're they're very able to change with their circumstances. But those circumstances really create the the foundation for the people they will become. And that's why having positive influences in such difficult situations becomes essential. And so, something like coaching for life and something like the the work that Arsenal Foundation is doing, 
can really basically rescue these children in terms of where the trajectory of where they're going as young people. And so I, I watched the video on, on the Arsenal website of Paramurta Sacker going down there. You're obviously a celebrity. You're in that video. So that was fun to see you on that. Um, but it's just so incredible. You know, you think of children living through that and how downtrodden they must be. And then you see the, the footage of Murta Sacker working with them on these pitches and their enthusiasm and their smiles and the, the joy that's on their face. And you realize how giving this little bit of solace and this distraction to these children is can can totally transform their life. So you've been there, you've participated in that. Can you talk a little bit about the impact that it has on these kids and specifically working with them the way you can sort of see them transform from someone who may be going through a really hard time to the way they come out of their shell to the way that they are uh, benefiting directly from from participating in this project? Yeah, absolutely. And this is all um, this is all based on our experience and our learning from sort of over 30 years of doing this in the local community as well, because the 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 grounding for all of this is is the same. It's that having somewhere safe to go, having feeling like you belong somewhere, having adults that you trust. And this this these are the things that sit behind all of our programs in the local community as well. So that's where all of this is sort of stemmed from you mean L london as well as, as yeah, yeah exactly yeah in in the local community around the stadium and, and now in our in our community hub that we where we run a lot of our sessions but people talk about the power of football and it is genuinely when you see the kids on the pitch whether it's in jordan whether it's in indonesia or or before that in iraq children seem to be the same on a pitch no matter where they are and football does obviously does that. It straight away it brings smiles to their faces. You can see the sense of belonging that they have by being on the pitch with their friends. That sense of competition, that sense of achievement, um, and and having for us in this program having adults that they can that they can trust that they know these adults are going to be at uh, at those pitches every day when they're there. So a lot of the time without our participants on coaching for life most kids will take part in the program once a week so their groups session will take part take place once a week but you'll see the same kids around the centers and around the pitches every day watching the other groups or even just kicking a ball around outside the uh the pitches because that's where they feel like they belong that's yeah i mean that's incredible and, and i would imagine uh, you know i hate to sort of bring it up but for a lot of these kids, maybe one or both parents are no longer with them. And so, you know, having that, that structure, that place where, as you said, they feel safe, they have adults they can trust, they have a place that they can go and sort of temporarily throw off the weight of some of the things they've had to deal with in their young lives. That must be essential. I mean, I'm sure, hopefully, there are some children that, that still have their family with them. But do you see a lot of that? I mean, a lot of sort of orphaned children or children that are, you know, without a parent? Yeah, I mean, I think a lot of the time, I don't want to generalise too much. A lot of the time, the um, the women will go to the camp or the families will go to the camp and it, often the fathers will go back to Syria because they took to work there and uh, they kind of mm -hmm. uh, wait until it's safe to go back. But I can, I can give you one example of a boy that, um, a boy that takes part in the programme or he did in one of the previous cycles. Who, who lives at home with his mum and his sis, his younger sister, 
and they ha- they're waiting to hear from the father and and the chances are that they they might never hear from him but they're waiting to hear from him before they before they can leave and this this boy they it took a little bit of convincing to get him involved in the program because he had to walk to the center and he's the man of the house he's a sort of 13 year old boy who is the man of the house and it he's his mother said this to us that he he tried to show that in his behaviour. So he was often aggressive in the way that he dealt with his younger sister and the way that he spoke to her. And our programme deals with all of all of those things. So our we're playing football, but our our messages is our messages are much more around managing emotions and communication and how to how to communicate assertively as opposed to aggressively. It's about understanding your own identity and self-esteem and these are the conversations we have with the children it's not about uh it's not about your shooting technique or your passing technique they practice that the conversations are all around these things that will hopefully build their resilience and improve their their general well-being and this this parent this mother said that by the end of the program the way that he spoke to his sister was completely different. Wow. He was much, he he was so much more caring. He used to come home and try to practice some of the activities with his with his mum and his sister <laughs> and she put down a lot of those changes in behavior to the program. And obviously he didn't have a um he didn't have his father around but seeing the the two coaches that he had at his pitch was almost taking the place of that male role model that he that he was missing. Um, and she spoke about how much of a positive influence they had on him. Yeah, that's amazing. I mean, it, it is when numbers get big, when you think of 40,000 children, it's hard to break it back down to the individual. But at the individual level, think of what the program's doing to the environment that sister will grow up in, to the relationship that mother will have with her son, to the person that son will grow up to become, and then all the people that person will influence and connect with and the life those people can have. And so it it really does branch out. I think when you help children, the amount of influence you can have expands exponentially because over the course of their life, as they become better people, they can have more influence themselves. So it is really heartening to hear those kind of stories. And I, th- I think it is easy sometimes when you think of people living in hardship and, and difficulty to emphasize the despair, but it is really the joy and the the stories of success and the stories of progress that make these efforts worthwhile. So, I mean, as, as sort of a last thought here, when, when the Arsenal Foundation gets these contributions and it's able to invest this money into new pitches in the uh, Zattery refugee camp or, or locally in the London community and help these people directly, I mean, I, I think what I really like about that is there are a lot of charities that do great work, but really they just take money in they research something and hopefully 10, 15, 20 years down the line, there's a positive benefit. And those are important charities. But Drew, you get to see individuals get benefited every single day by the work you're doing. And you know, again, I, that's not to say that other charities that are researching cures to cancer and things like that aren't incredibly important. But there really is something powerful, right, about touching a life specifically, seeing how that life benefits and then branches off and, and goes in a better direction. Yeah, you mentioned how how much that message can spread, and obviously, in such a close knit, uh, almost cramped community, these 
parents will talk to their friends and their families about the program and what benefit it's had for their children. And, and you see that snowball effect happening even now, um, not just with those individual behaviours, but even in the way that we promote uh, the participation of girls in the programme. Girls participating in football is seen as something that is that is not supposed to happen. Discouraged, a, yep. Mm-hmm. Yeah, exactly. So our pitches for the girls are covered so that the parents are comfortable with them being there. All of their, all of the girls' coaches are females. Um, so we put all those things in place. But then you see the knock-on effect where their parents have seen how happy the programme makes the girls. And now we've got mothers who want to have a team. And then the, and then the mothers are playing football. And now they talk about, oh, their husband is happy for them to go and play oh, wow. football because they're happier when they're when they're home and you so you see that knock-on effect that this has and and we're really invested in being there as a as a constant and not just dropping in here and there and I think that also shows in the young people that participate have an opportunity when they finish to become junior coaches and then to later on become coaches in the program and we're also uh, we're also providing a real pathway and a purpose for the adults who are delivering this program because our all of our coaches are Syrian refugees themselves. Wow, and that's giving cool. giving them a real purpose because they can see the impact that they're having on on the kids, and hopefully that just continues to to spread. And I mean, building a new Arsenal fans, right. To, to grow up and support the club and the club supporting them. And I mean, what, what better way to create this community we always talk about than to help people in need who love the club and through their love of the club, you know, find their life improved. And it, it just feels like a really nice um, sort of way to pay it forward. So Drew, I, I can't thank you enough for the work you've done. I know you haven't been back to Jordan in a little bit and you were recently married. So congratulations on that, but not, not only the work, uh, in the Zattery refugee camp, but around the world and, and in London specifically, I think it is nice to highlight some of the work that happens further afield to understand that Arsenal is reaching beyond the, the local boundaries to help people around the world. And there's something about helping children that I think everyone can connect with. So my hope is that hearing this story will help people, you know, really feel motivated to, to contribute. Obviously we're going to contribute a lot of money and, and try to raise as much as we can, because as this project continues, we're just helping more people and building more Arsenal fans. So all good things. Thanks, Drew. Uh, thanks a lot. And, and like you said, this we've, we've reached a lot of children already, but there are so many more, so many more children in the camp who who need our support and who, who we want to get involved in this program. So yeah, we really appreciate all your efforts and yeah, thanks for having me. Uh, it, it's all you. And I, I guess the, the good news and bad news, there's always more children that need to be helped, but there's always more work that can be done. So we'll we'll leave it there. We'll take a break. We'll come back with more after this. Thanks so much, Drew. Uh, you'll see the links and the information to give again in all of the um, on the website. There'll be a direct link to donate. We'll have it on the social posts. We'll have it in the notes to the show. But uh, we're going to contribute. I hope you will too. And we'll be talking more about this over the next coming week. So we'll take a break. We'll come back with more. Stay with us. Okay, 
Okay, we're back. And now, unfortunately, we have to drag down the podcast because we're going to go from that hopeful, optimistic message, a message that brings us all together, to talking about the actual Arsenal Football Club side of things. And that is um, maybe not a message that brings us all together quite so much. What we're going to do today is, is cover the transfer window, how we feel it went, our sort of summary and takeaways from all the business we did. And we did a lot of business. We're going to obviously spend some time talking about Tomiyasu specifically because that was the deadline day signing we haven't analyzed yet. And if you want to see everything there is to know about this player, we did a scouting pod for him on the Patreon side. We watched footage that literally covers every pass he made last season at Bologna, every long pass, every tackle, every one-on-one for the entire season. Um, And so you can watch that and you can draw your own conclusions or not draw conclusions. So uh, I'm going to introduce the guys on here and then I want to say one thing. So Paul's on Twitter, Paul's my pants. Hello, Paul. And Clive's on Twitter, Clive PFC. Hello, Clive. Hello, hello. So there's just one thing I want to say before we get into the Tomiyasu discussion and grading the window, and that's this. I am a little bit loose with my opinions at times. Sometimes I, I, especially on Twitter, write them in hyperbolic fashion and then have to sort of row back from them. I'm trying not to do that, but it is my safe space to vent, and I do tell you to block me there. So you were forewarned. That's forearmed. I think there is sort of this weird dynamic, though. Optimism is important. It is good to be optimistic. It is good to want to believe in the future. You can be optimistic and engage in rational, clear-eyed analysis right? That doesn't mean not an optimist. Like I hope every signing we made this summer becomes a, a Ballon d'Or candidate, right? But I can still engage in clear-eyed analysis. And one thing that I find a little bit weird is that there is this sort of reaction that if you want to say really glowing positive things about a signing, oh, I watched him last season. He's got an amazing left foot. He puts an incredible cross. He's got a powerful shot. Then that's always fine. If you have criticisms of that player, you are often met with the answer, can you wait until he's kicked a ball for Arsenal? And I just think, like, if it's fair game to say what the player is good at before he arrives, then it has to be fair game to say some of the things he struggles with. And, oh, by the way, all players struggle with all things. The other thing is, some players are going to be the type you love, some are going to be the type I love. You know, a lot of people know I was harsh on Giroud. It's not because Giroud's a bad player. He didn't fit my eye. He wasn't my type of player. Very good player. So... You know, there, all of that is bound up. And so as we get into this conversation today, I hope you will have the ability to go with us on this journey of, of education and information and learning together. We'll find out more about the player when he does play for us. But both the praise and the criticism is always a part of the analysis. And it should be fair game if it's done responsibly and not like how I do it on Twitter. So uh, with that having been said, let's get to the Tomiyasu signing. Clive, you and I watched quite a bit of him. Mm-hmm. Literally every on-the-ball action and one-on-one defensive action he had uh, in the entire season he played for Bologna last season and, and actually a little bit beyond that. Yeah. Do you want to give me your 30,000-foot view? And in fact, you know what? Let me read out just real quick a quote that Arteta gave about the player because I think it's revealing to some extent and about Arteta and what he wants and who the player is. And I actually think it's fairly spot on. Um, so... Here is the quote. He says, I'm so happy with Tomiyasu. We followed him for a while. We need a fullback who could be very versatile, can play as a center back, can play in a back three. I think he nails it with what that is. Whether we need that, we can get into. So what's your 30,000-foot view on the sign? Yeah, I thought he's a player that's been linked previously in the summer, also linked with Spurs. So as soon as that happens, I go YouTubing. Um, And so he wasn't a surprise to me from when he landed because I knew a bit about him. And he is exactly that. He's a hybrid centre-back, right-back. So what I've studied a bit more closely is his passing ability, <clears throat> excuse me, off both feet. He can clip it 
left foot, right foot, straight. He can switch play both feet. That, that's really good because you know my feelings about some of our defenders who can't kick it. So he can do that. So he's a, a passer from deep. Again, I think that's the way the game is going. Front to back. Sorry, back to front. Second ball, football, go from there. Switch people in behind with a bit of clip on it and spin. He can do that off both feet. So if, he's, if the line is blocked, he can come inside and he can switch it or, or dink it inside. So I quite like that. So one of my phrases is he's an all-court player, quite energetic. Again, I think we could do with that. I think we lack energy. So he's a naturally energetic, tenacious, fighting footballer. Then I looked at how he defended. I, I like his distances when he goes into a challenge. He, he uses his body early. So I, it's what I call, it's something I sometimes think when a, when a defender, get your move off first. Don't allow your man to do his move. Then you're at risk 50-50 if you can stop him. So he gets very tight very quickly and really gets under people his distances are fantastic. Hence why he's quite hard to dribble past. And he, we did see a weakness when, he, when people chopped inside onto his left foot. It takes a little bit of time for him to turn around and then block off lanes. But he does force people backwards, use his body to get arm in the back, push people back. I liked how he defended. So, but, not, but whenever you analyse a player, you walk in the room with certain things you want to see. So I'm, I'm looking at Ben White and I'm thinking, we need a defender next to him. We don't need a a fancy Dan Baller 50, 20 yards away from him. We need somebody next to him that can do some of the physical stuff. So when I saw this player, I immediately went, tick, that's what we need. A centre-back right-back is good in the air, that's quite physical, that can handle his business, that allows Ben White to seek around and dis- and actually see the next problem and sweep it up. And that's perfect. We've got, we've got Big Bang, Gabriel next to him, and Tommy Ashu wants to go into collisions and he can just survey the area. And I'm and so I saw it as a positive move on paper. Now, my, my one caveat is I haven't seen him on grass for Arsenal and I haven't seen him under stress for Arsenal. And I think that's the key thing when you you can assess a player, see all their skill sets, but when it comes down to it, under stress, Arsenal Football Club, Emirates Stadium, a goal down North London derby, where does he go? And that's when you start to judge a player over a period of time. That's what I'm looking forward to seeing. Uh, good, the good times and the bad times, where does he go? How does he come out of it? How does he overcome them? And then my sort of assessment will be more complete. Yeah, that's fair. I mean, I, I, I will say this. There are certain things that right away he brings that will improve us. He will make us better on defensive set pieces, which last season we were good at. This season has already looked like a problem, and in preseason, he is good in the air. And given that we have signed a 50 million pound center back who isn't good in the air, Trading off those characteristics is certainly important, so that is good. Paul, I mean, I, watching the video of him, I mean, realize he plays left center back for the Japan U23s. He played center back quite a bit for Bologna. He is a sort of right across the back five, well, back four kind of player. He's never going to be a wing back, but, you know, he can play left center back, right center back, and right back. He's not a right back in the way that I certainly think of them. Clive's right. I bring that into the room. Um, you know, Trent Alexander-Arnold has broken some people's brains, I think, because he's a unicorn. And at 22, he is 
you know, the, the best right back you could possibly ever hope to imagine. And that's, that's just not common. He can't um, tackle though, Elliot. He can't tackle one-on-one well, he gets blown by. That. Yeah. So, that that's a, so it's systems again, isn't it, mate? It, yeah. Yeah. No, look, I, I, I totally get that. I'm more TAA than Aaron Juan Bissaka, right? Like I, I think at a big club, you want the former more than the latter, but he's neither of those guys. He is, he is more of an interior defender um, in terms of, his his body shape, his physical attributes, his aerial dominance. Look, he's great going to the byline. He will not get beat to the byline, and I think that's important um, because that's something we're vulnerable to with all of our fullbacks. Um, he will close down space. If there's one thing I think, Paul, we can agree that sucked, it's watching players out on the wing have four and five yards to serve in crosses and passes. He is combative. He will close down that space quick. So if you're going to put in a cross, you got to do it quickly. You won't get to measure it, and that's great. He's not going to get in the final third. And that means that this is very much an Arteta system play, right? Back three in the first phase of buildup in possession, sort of that that lopsided formation. So I'm curious what you think of the player, but also what you think in terms of the player in light of the fact that we're, we're not sure where the Arteta experience is going. Do you think he's a player that looks a lot better as a signing for this manager than if he were not to be the manager, for example? Um, so... Look, I do feel very differently about him than you do, but I guess that won't be a shocker for us. Well, no, differently in terms of my assessment of what his strengths are, because yeah, I, I, yeah, I do. Well, he's he's not a touchline fullback. He's not going to get in the final third. He's not going to assist. He's not going to score. He's not going to. I mean, like he's not going to cross. Do you disagree with that? Um, he's not a final third player, um, but I think he's pretty good at pretty much everything else. He's a really good defender. Um, and the one thing we have lacked, if if we watched our last three g- games and last and Lord knows we did, was a guy uh, on the right hand side of our pitch who's really good at defending. Is big, is tall, is fast, loves defending, wins his battles, has some quality on the ball, gives us some control. Um, it, is quick and has the time to distribute upfield. And you're right, he's not he's not the guy at this point. Um, he's 22, so we don't know what he'll be in the end. But at this point, he's not the guy who's going to go running past Pepe up the right and bang in crosses. Um, but short of spending 70 million on some wonder player, you got to make your choices. And what we were lacking most. Uh, was a guy who could defend. Uh, as Clive says, he lets Ben White do his thing. Um, and I've, like, it's early days. It's, the window's just closed. So, you know, I, I get to enjoy our transfers before I see them play. And so, yes, I'm going to be a little optimistic and I'm going to give him the benefit of the doubt. And maybe like Kalasinac, we'll love him for three months and then decide he's a bum. But <laughs> but we did have a glorious three months with Kalasinac when Terrera, most, right? I mean, it yeah, yeah. went south pretty quick with him. And yeah. And, it, you know, let's, let's remember that Terrera is probably a very good player. It just, it, it's not always about the ability of the player. It's about the adaptation. It's about all sorts of shit. So um, it's like coffee shops, right? Um, if a coffee shop opens up in your area, you could you could place a bet that it'll go bust within the next few years because the guy running it's bad or because of no it's just 
most coffee shops, most restaurants won't make it. So, like, um, we get to enjoy a transfer coming in. There's a lot I like about them. Doesn't mean it'll work out. Most players, most transfers are either meh or in the end kind of don't work out, right? You'd Mm -hmm. sell them for a reason before they're 33. Um, uh, There's a lot I like about this guy. Um, I know you had your concerns. I don't share most of them. Um, The fact that he's flexible isn't his fault in the sense that any guy who's really good at defending is tall and fast and has two good feet, is disciplined, uh, pays attention, is coachable, is going to be afflicted by the fact that he can play full back and he can play right centre back. And because he's got a really good left foot and they had another good right centre back, he was asked to play left centre back. He's got a good left. He is very two footed. It's yeah. a great quality to have. Absolutely. We don't have enough of it in the side. And he's switched on and just a really good defender who's quick, fast, tall. He can play right centre back and he can play full back. And like I, I understand the concern about specificity, but he was specifically a centre back last year and specifically a full back the year before and a very good full back by all accounts. So uh, mm. we need we need a full back. Um, who's tall, can defend headers, unlike certain people. I, I've said from the v- summer, from preseason, that my concerns about Chambers wa- were he couldn't defend, he couldn't do one-on-ones, and I was kind of somewhat alarmed that he couldn't do that part of it. I didn't think his whole game would kind of fall apart on us, as it seems to. But man, I wish we'd had a guy there who was six foot two against City who could head a ball out and hold down that side and will attack down the left with uh, Tierney uh, or Nuno to stand in from. And we just need a guy to get us into the final third. And that's Ben White. And also, um, uh, Tommy Yasu is a good progressive passer in the first and second thirds from what I've seen. I I don't think he is, but that's just me. I'm not saying you're wrong. Can I say something? I saw saw a lot of the stats this year, but that was when from his centre-back year, from his full-back year, his passing was really good for a full-back. Yeah, when he was a centre-back. The year before that, he was the full-back, and his go-look in FB ref. His progressive pass, I want to be clear, I'm not basing it off the stats. I'm just basing it off what, what I watched, and... And so here's the thing, right? Okay. I don't really disagree with your assessment at all. Yeah. Um, like I, so first things first, he, this is his 23 year old season. Fullbacks mature the earliest of virtually any position on the pitch. Yeah. So like, I think we should get a clear sense this season of what he is. I'm not saying he's a finished article. He's not in his prime, but I think we should get a pretty clear sense of what he is. Like who he is as a player should sort of be clear to us. I think, in Arteta's system, he is a no-brainer fit. I want to be clear about that. He will close down space. He will attack his aerial duels successfully and effectively. He will not get beat to the byline. He will need help coming inside, but that's where the help lives, so that's fine. I see a player who I think on the ball, we're going to be a little surprised at, at the level. I think people think he's very good on the ball. He is two-footed, but I don't think he's particularly great with either foot. He's not a carrier of the ball, that's for sure. Um, and you know, I think he has the kind of pace that Ben White has, right? Like he can run. He's not pacey, right? He's not, he's not a very quick fullback. So I would, and this is me. I'm breathing life into this year. This is me. I would like a tyranny on the right. Arteta does not want a tyranny on the right. So to be clear, 
Arteta bought the player he wants, and I think he got a player who checks a lot of the boxes for what he wants. So this is going to kind of be, the irony is more than maybe any other signing we made, because I think Sambi has huge upside with the skill set he brings, and I think Tavares is very toolsy, which is maybe sort of an Americanism, but like, you know, electrifying pace and physicality and, and ball striking, but rough around the edges. Um, you know, Ben White, we, we've covered extensively, don't need to go into that more. Odegaard, I mean, he's, Arsenal player, if ever there was one, in terms of what he brings. I know Clive has some thoughts on that. But, like, I think Tomiyasu, maybe more than any other player, is a real referendum on Arteta and the football he wants to play because I think, Clive, he is an absolute round peg, round hole fit for what Mikel seems to want to do. And so, it should help him play that way more effectively. I, To your point, I'm bringing it into the room. It's not the profile of, of fullback I'd want us to be hitching our wagon to for the future. But it is the kind of fullback that if Arteta succeeds and turns this around and thrives, it feels like hand in glove. So I'll absolutely give him that. So would you would you say that that is at least sort of a fair way to look at it, that this player with this coach, more than any other we signed maybe, is an absolute ideological fit? It could be, but I think he's not the only person that likes to have one fullback that sits in. We've done this throughout our history, and I don't, I don't think it's a big deal, Elliot. I, I just, I, I, I've always been one that likes a, a big right back. If you know what I mean, I've always. Sure, I'm that. not saying it's right or wrong. I'm saying it's a fit for Arteta, though. You know what yeah. I mean? Like it's what. But he not wants. just Arteta. I mean, Everton did the same thing. I think uh, someone did point out to me on Twitter, and I wish I had got your name because it was a brilliant line. We were, we were having this discussion about Ben White and the type of play he should play with. And someone said, but didn't he do well with Lamptey? But he was in the back three and Lamptey was a wing back. But someone then pointed out, but he did well with Luke Ayling, who's a right back centre back playing for Leeds in the back four. And I thought, genius, I wish I'd have said that. You know, <laughs> I go, because he's the and same. The thing is, Clive, he played most of Brighton's season without Lamptey and yeah, everybody exactly. said he had a great season. He was... Basically, yeah, player of the, one of the players of the year. So, yeah, like, exactly. somehow he survived no Lamptey and being a progressive passer for them and impacting their play. So, uh, I think that's one of those memes that caught on that if he has a Lamptey, he's great. Uh, and that fits our picture of how he must have played. Yeah. Um, I'm amazed how strong people's feelings are on players. They have not watched like really like truly intensely watched like the way we watch them when they've played us for months like i say all this is on paper i haven't seen him for real yet and and i just think this is the perfect balance signing or counterbalance to to ben white's attributes it's exactly what what i would want the back four balance of that first back four on paper is spot on you got an aggressive center back that can jump out of his boots you've got a right back that's that causes stress and trauma and smashes everything in front of him. You've got a clean, short, smooth, male model centre-back that can just keep the ball <laughs> in, in in a phone box and can't be pressed off it and can stride out with it. And you've got a left-back who's never there, right? So who's up the field, smashing everybody, smashing in crosses, different angles and shapes. You have a double pivot in front, left foot, right foot, both six-footers, and then you have a front four diamond. So on paper, it all looks beautiful. And, and so, then we switch into three at the back while the other guys push on. And the fact that uh, Tommy Yasu is kind of a hybrid centre-back, right-back seems to make perfect sense when you've got three at the back. 
Yeah, it makes sense on paper. But if you want um, Trent right back or Lamptey right back or Aaron's right back or an Emerson Royale right back, this isn't the guy for you. It just isn't. You probably need a more defensive left back. You'd need a defensive left back or you'd have a midfield three who are shot suppressing midfield, like Liverpool, for example, that don't go into the box, don't go into wide areas, and are basically three policemen that go and get it, smash it, stop you getting near their centre-backs, and they can push it forward very, very quickly to three narrow forwards and full-backs that are chief creators. So if you like that, then this guy isn't for you. Well, there's no way we can front load everything, right? You need to give its trade-offs. You neither need to be more conservative in midfield or you need to be more conservative at the other full-back position or you need to take your life in your hands and just attack, attack, attack. Even the best team we've ever had in our history, one full-back went up the field in Ashley Cole, the other one inverted in Lorem. So I'm used to this. This is what I want to see. I want to see structure. I want to see over a lopsided team. I quite like it. And so it doesn't bother me. For me, I don't want to overimpose how I want to see it all the time. I want to get to know it. And I almost don't want to know everything about the player. I want to know, can he do it? So when you say that he's not a progressive passer, what I was looking for in that video yesterday was, can he pass? What's his technique? Or oh, he can do straight balls. Left foot, right foot, that's hard. He can fade it, backspin it. That's difficult on your weak foot. He can switch 50 yards on his weak foot accurately. Even the fact he's attempting it tells me he's got the technique and power. Really good. So can Clive he do wants an arranged marriage. He doesn't want to know too much about her. <laughs> I, and, and Elliot's looking for a love match where, you know, they've lived together for a while. They really know each other. They've moved into an apartment together. It's just different approaches to marriage. Yeah, I, well, I mean, first of all, I don't want to move into the apartment. I want to move into their villa. Uh, uh, and <laughs> I, want to, I want to drive around in their multicolored Porsche or, or uh, oh. Lamborghini or whatever. I want to be a trophy husband. Let's be clear about that. And I think the only thing stopping me, apart from my looks, my height, my sexual prowess, um, well, there might be other things, but I can't think of anything. Um, so, look, you weren't expecting that to show up in the podcast, were you? Say, Let's talk about more... you, Clive. How are you as a lover? <laughs> Let's say one more thing. I think sometimes, because what we're doing now as fans, we're really good at this, right? much better than Sky TV. We do assessments. We do videos. We have, like, breakdowns, and we have tactical analysis. Oh, I have we... breakdowns. <laughs> I have breakdowns for days. <laughs> and we do, we do all this stuff way better than mainstream, right? But sometimes what I will say to people is just leave a bit. Don't try and know too much because you might see something that that surprises you. If your mind is closed to it, you won't see it. You won't see it. You you really won't. And and I'm I'm excited to see this guy turn up in the shirt and and see what it looks like standing next to people. He could be he could be he could be a Cancello or he could be a Carl Jenkinson. I Mm. don't know. But on paper, attribute wise, profile wise. For this team, how we play, 2-3-5, 3-2-5, you know the rules. This guy fits the players that we bought as an enabling player for other people to do well. Yeah, it, it is interesting to me, though. You know, I think if you want to look at the best period under Arteta, the 4-2-3-1, post-boxing day to, you know, right around when we lost Tierney to injury, and Smith, Rowe, and Odegaard were there. And, like, it looked a little more traditional. 
right back went up, left back stayed back, left back went up, right back stayed back. But like it didn't have that back three in the first phase design. It was a little more of a traditional back four model. I think it's interesting that he seems to be walking away from that. But like setting that aside, I just want to take on one contention that I see, which is it sort of like, hey, if you've got one fullback that attacks, you can't have another fullback that's able to attack. Well, what I would say is both your fullbacks should be able to attack, but they don't both have to do it at the same time. Like, you know, there are lots of teams that have good attacking fullbacks on both flanks, but they don't both go at the same time. That That's just Are they both good football. defenders as well, though? Well, I mean, like I, we di- we must all think we need a bit more defending in our defenders after the last three games. Yeah, I don't, I don't know. I mean, like I, I see. Well, so first of all, it's tough, right? Because you got back three teams that play with wing backs, and the wing backs are attacky, right? Because that's what they're there to do by design. Yeah. And then you have back four teams, and Liverpool are a bad example because they just happen to have two super duper elite fullbacks. So, you know, that's not a great example to use. It's tough, right? Because whenever you compare across teams, they have different circumstances. I think you look at a very secure midfield and a world-class center back. I mean, Liverpool are just different. Well, they're stacked. Yeah, I mean, they're just absolutely stacked. But like setting that aside, I, I, I think what I see here is at a minimum, an upgrade in the very short term to our defense. I think part of the reason I find myself scratching my head is in June, we all would have said Arteta's found a platform defensively. He has to find a way to get this attack functioning if he's going to take us up to the next level. And in two games of the season, or three games technically, we've decided that actually the problem is the defense and we have to put out that fire and we have to acquire players or do whatever we Shouldn't can that puts fair, out that when fire. When we talked about it in the summer, I said time and time again, the reason we're solid defensively is because we maintain our shape at all costs and the challenge will be for us when we push forward with this higher line we're going to actually find out whether we're any good at defending as opposed to just maintain like we don't tackle in the final third we don't intercept we keep our shape i'm talking of last year right we keep our shape we wait for them to get bored and turn the ball over to us and then we play out it wasn't because we were great defensively it was because we were very protect. It was the toothpaste thing. We had the toothpaste in the bottom of the tube. We kept our shape. It was secure. We we wondered why we weren't having enough attacking down the other end, weren't creating enough opportunities. So I'm not shocked. I mean, I said it a few times. I'm not shocked that as we pushed up with a higher line, we actually found out how good our defending was. Mm. Well, it's bad. I mean, here, here we go, right? <clears throat> because now we have... Uh, by the way, speaking of here we go, Tobin Heath joining Arsenal, which is pretty exciting. Arsenal women. Um, age so Clive, curve, Elliot. Age yep, curve. Yeah, but the heart wants what the heart wants to be fair. <laughs> um, Clive, the, I, I think we can finish the Tomiyasu conversation because then we can move on to the overall evaluation of the window and, mm-hmm. and maybe one other thing. But um, I think, you know, you look at the price around 20 million euro. It's not so cheap that it's a punt. He's not so young that it's a punt. I think the expectation is that this player should be the solution at this position right now with upside. And I'm I'm on board with that 100%. I think what you have is a solid foundation defensively in this player. He definitely can. I mean, watching him, the thing that becomes clear to me is you won't need to play a Kolasinac at left center back because you don't want to play Marie because you <clears throat> you could play this guy if you had to. So he he addresses some issues. Do you think he addresses right back at a level that that 
improves us the way we need to. Like, and like, I don't just mean can get us to top six this season. Like, that's part of the problem with squad building, right? Does he make us better this season? Of course he does. Our right backs are awful, and he is much better than all of them. The question is, let's say, can he get us to top six this season? Two seasons from now, when we need to be pushing into the top four and beyond, can he be the right back for that team? And four seasons from now, when we need to be pushing for trying to get to that title level, can he be the right back in that team? Because that's really the measure, right? The first standard, Clive, is... Does he make us better right now? And I think undeniably he does because it's such a weak link in our squad. But the next question is, as we grow in our project, will he be the guy to grow with us or will we need to outgrow him? So what's your take on that? Can he? Will we outgrow what he does as we improve or do you think he can grow with the project? I know we hate that word project, but you know what I mean? With the yeah. project of trying to become top six, then top four, then top two, then top one. You know what I mean? Yeah, the way I look at it is... I don't know the answers, but he has a greater chance of growing with the project than, than Cedric does. Right? And, uh, and, and, but this is what we wanted, wasn't it? We wanted, That's a limbo competition for the record. <laughs> That's a low, low bar. <laughs> we, but this is what we wanted, wasn't it? We wanted people that could grow with the project. We wanted to think about yes. the squad value, the resale. So I learned this from you, Elliot, right? So I look at this and think, I don't, look, I'm looking at the quality and I'm looking at the attributes early. I don't quite know the quality yet. I've seen him play games, and I've quite liked him. But I haven't seen him play games where he's playing for Arsenal, and my life for my weekend depends on it. I'm going to really watch it, right? So so I don't know. But I'm excited about it because he, he he's the right sort. You know, when people talk about Max Aarons, I'm thinking, no chance, mate. No, 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 no. Not with Ben White there. Because if I'm the opposition, I'm going straight into that hole, straight into it. They look good in the ball. Again, this is what you like. You like a Max Hans. Technical player, used to be number 10, plays out wide, dribble, 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 cross, Cruyff turns, flicks around the corners, in behind it, Norwich get relegated because he's never in his hole. <laughs> right, so that, that, that doesn't work for me anymore. It doesn't work for me. It's about a balance. You know, there were players that I didn't like in previous times, people like Matthew Flamini running around, sleeves rolled up, smashing people. But there's always a place for those players in your team for a certain period of time and it's just about a, a balance really and you've heard me talk about enabling players and I just like to see this done will he go where I want him to go don't know yet but it won't take long to work out we'll see him in that fullback position we'll see him settle he's an experienced young player much like Ben White they've, they've done a few laps of, of the divisions he travels to different countries He's, an ex- he's played for international football. Yeah, he's an experienced young player like Odegaard is as well. Let's give him a go, right? See what it looks like. You know, in the in the world, if you said to me, who would you like there to play right back? I always liked Nordi Mukileli, sorry. I liked him. I did like Emerson Royale, but I think fit-wise, I think we need that centre-back right back player. That, they're the ones I like. So Carl Walker is my ideal obviously is at Man City getting paid a million pound a week so like that's not going to happen so that type of player dominant physical player that can look after himself roll around into a three settles his, his, his full backs and centre backs down nicely always underpins his winger you break into midfield you can't do it you can't get past him De- protects the defensive transition because he can recovery running is there that's the sort of things I think we need you know and and so I'm looking to see it in, in reality, and hopefully Arteta doesn't play in false nine and we're all good, right? So that's what I'm looking for. Yeah, one thing to point out, you know, he shows up on this, one of the stats making the rounds is uh, he's one of the pass, one of the fullbacks that plays the most wide passes. So he's like 
considered to be very inverted. Um, but I think it's interesting also because we know Arteta wants to feed the ball out wide, and and that's where his strength lies in in playing the ball wider than the half space. So it could be it could be the most specific sign. I think you tried to allude to that earlier that that we've made. That's, it, that was what I was alluding to. Yes, yeah, in terms it, of it, ideological fit. Yep. Yes, yeah, specificity. This is exactly it. It's, it's, it looks like he's come out of the stat sheet. It really does. It's, everything, aerials, in passes, switches, points of attack, it, it, invert. It's, it's what he wants to do. And I don't mind him doing whatever he wants to do, as long as it's really clear. And it's becoming incredibly clear what he wants. Right? So mm. for me, I'm all for it. I don't like the cloudiness, shall we say, Elliot, that we've seen when yeah. bad decisions happen, I don't like that. Yeah, I, I just think he is a complete ideological fit for the coach. And I, I hope that that means that it works. Like, even if you're really, really, really at wit's end with Arteta, if it works, that's great. Like, that, that's, that's the thing. If we start winning games, everything's fine. Absolutely everything is fine. All of the analysis is worthless if you start winning games because that's all that matters, right, ultimately, if you win enough of them. So... I think we can leave the Tomiyasu conversation there. We'll obviously get to see him in an Arsenal shirt and we'll get to pick it up from there. I, I do think, well, let me ask you one last question about him, Paul, because I, I think this is interesting. Um, he's not going to venture past the edge of the final third. Like he literally did not <laughs> enter the final third more than like a handful of times for Bologna. That's just not where he goes. And that's not his role. That's not saying, I'm not talking about whether he can or can't do it, right? Like yeah. it's kind of like the Ramsdale playing short argument. Maybe he can, we just don't have a lot of evidence of it. But in terms of what that means for Pepe or Sack or whoever's on the right, how do you see us addressing the issue we've sort of had where the attack is very, very left-sided with Tierney overlapping the left winger and a lot of crosses coming from the left and the right-sided player often having to kind of fend for himself? I and mean, do you think Odegaard becomes a fix for that, drifting over there? What? How do you think we, we get Pepe or whoever is playing on the right closer to the box and more involved in the attacks in the absence of a, a supporting fullback? Um, it's definitely the head scratcher for me in terms of who takes the width and who goes along the touchline. Um, because, you know, if we, if we assume that Tamiyasu plays as he played previously, um, he's not the guy to go along the touchline. Um, I think I joked that I'd watched a eight minute highlights video of him. And every time it came to him putting in a cross, which looked really good, the build-up, he beat a guy, he's got speed, put bangs in a cross, the the, uh, clip edits exactly at the point he strikes the ball with his foot. And so, uh, rather suspiciously, I didn't actually see where any of the balls went. So I don't think, uh, I'm certainly suspicious that his crossing, his final third, apart from the fact that he hasn't done any when he has done it, it may not have been wonderfully great. Um, Pepe should go to the byline more than he does, should run in behind, should be the guy. Uh, I know everybody's like, get him in the box. He's best in the box. But like, if he wants to play on the right on a regular basis, he needs to be able to go both ways. And he's really good on his right foot for a guy who, who we have down as totally left-footed. He's not. He can go to the byline. He can chip in a good cross. Um but if, I, if we assume that doesn't change, that's how Pepe is going to play. Um, well, we have the option of Saka on the right, and he will go in behind, and he is clever. And so I think the like it's nice to have the overlapping fullback, and with Odegaard there, he's not the guy to overlap. 
you can't pull Smith Rowe over there to get in behind. So it is the one <coughs> one area of the pitch uh, where I agree with your concern that I haven't worked out how we're going to work that corner. Obviously, we can keep Tommy Asu a little. Uh, uh, if we think of a triangle over there with Odegaard, Pepe, and uh, Tommy Asu, um, they're going to have to work without Tommy Asu being the overlapper. Or maybe he does overlap and he bangs in across every now and then or he cuts it back, but it's not his forte. So not entirely sure how that corner is going to work. Mm. It's interesting. If you look at that list making the rounds of the most inverted fullbacks in football, it's three Manchester City players, Tomiyasu, and then a list of an absolute sack of trash from around Europe. Um, and it's just kind of ironic, right? Because Pep Guardiola, where do his fullbacks play? Anywhere but fullback. And so, you know, I'm sure there's a little bit of that education uh, coming into this. Clive, we should move on. Do, do, do you want to just have a nibble <laughs> no, on how no, we solve no. the right flank? No, well, it's, it, it, I know it, you do. Yeah, well, yeah, I suppose I do. <laughs> <laughs> well, it, but don't don't stress about it because you've got you, by asking that question, you want to solve it one way, and that's what you want people to run around the outside and and cross. No, I'm asking how we solve it. I promise. Yeah. I'm I'm just asking how. I'm not okay. at this point. I'm giving up my biases. Here they go. <laughs> that's them flying out the window. I'm just yeah. asking. I just want somebody who can pass to those attacking players quickly and accurately and with quality and not have five touches look down, can't pass forward and pass back to the centre-back. That's what I want to fix. Get the ball to those good, talented people quickly so they've got an extra couple of yards to do their moves. Not wait till you carry it to them, drop it off like a bit of mail with, the, with all these big boots next to them. Right, so there are stylistic things that we've done historically which are so kludgy and so wrong and so poor. And because someone puts a cut across you say he's had a good game, that is rubbish. Absolutely rubbish. It's about enabling your talent to play well. This is it, and this is what this guy, I hope, is going to do. I don't know if he's going to be any good, but I can absolutely see the tactical profile fit. And it's spot on. It's what Callan Chambers should be and was developing into until he got locked in Kentucky Fried Chicken over the lockdown in the summer and come back out of shape right? and not able to run. And suddenly we've got to do the emergency signing. This is, this is down to him. He has blown his chance of being Arsenal's number one fullback. Because the there were periods last year where he was more than serviceable in that inverted role. And he messed up. He messed up. And that's the issue. Cedric is Cedric. Let's not talk about it. And Bain and Niles has reappeared. Well, all right. in a, I want to ask you about way. that. I, I, screw it. Screw moving on. We're 40 minutes on Tomiyasu. Why not? It's our podcast. Clive, yeah. let me ask you this, because I do think that Tomiyasu is a sort of specialist defender. I think Ainsley Maitland-Niles is a specialist defender with some elite superpowers. Yeah. He helped us shut down two very, very dangerous teams on the way to winning an FA Cup. If what Arteta wants is a young, physically skill, skillful defender in, in the duels, can you tell me a little bit about what you think Tomiyasu adds for us that he couldn't have solved with Maitland-Niles in the short term? Well, this is, Maitland-Niles is slightly different. I think he might end up being a more of a wing-back, and that's probably his best position for me. Um, I don't. I think he has concentration issues, which I don't think I know, because I've got a bit of time to actually look at him. Some of that's down to him. Some of that's down to being thrown around the pitch in different positions, where I think he's been treated slightly unfairly due to his versatility. 
I have a very simple measure with my fallback analysis. I'm going to make you laugh here, Elliot. I call it the Mane test, right? So I look at Mane, I think, right, you are dashing, slashing, super quick, righty, flying in from from the left. Can can you Callum Chambers stop you? Mm, can Maitland no. Niles stop you? Yes. No, yeah, he's done it. We've seen him do it. Can Cedric stop you? Mm. <laughs> He'd have to know he was there first. <laughs> and, and, Where'd and, who go? <laughs> and, and can Tomiyasu stop you one on ones? Only to the byline. Well, can he stop him? He can stop him. So, of those two, you can guess who my favorite two are to be the right back. Mm-hmm. Yep. Very simple. You pass the Mane test or you don't. The thing, the, the, the worrying thing for Arsenal is the Mane test for Callum Chambers was seven years ago, and he failed it then, and he's still here. And so you want to know why we are where we are. That's there it is. Well, right but if then. you want a home truth, Clive Tierney, Tierney fails the Mane test like that. Well, you know, well, Tierney, shock horror. Tierney's a fantastic player, and he is a a, a good defender. But a lot of his skill sets are offensive. And if we're honest, he's not always on it defensively. Right. So yes, that's the truth. So we've got a defensive fullback and we've got an offensive fullback. Same yeah. for Luke Shaw. It's the same for for Robertson. If you pin them in a corner, you can get you can blow them. You can blow straight past them, right? So it happens, right? Because particularly those up and down players who are exhausted in the one on ones, you can get them. Trent, you can get him. He doesn't bend his legs or doesn't adjust his feet. He gets squared up. You can get him. Brilliant player. One of my favourite players. Trent is should be in midfield, by the way. One of my favourite players. But you can get him, right? So it's all about a balance, right? So those guys. Chambers and Cedric can't pass the Mane test. We ain't going to get anywhere until we have people that can. And we've got a couple that might be able to. If one can sort himself out in his head and the other one to be confirmed. Mm. All right. Let's, we got that straightened out. Now let's straighten out your teeth. We'll come back. <clears throat> we'll grade the window. Stay with us. There's a specialist for just about everything, right? When my car breaks down, I go to a mechanic. When there's a problem with my shower, I call a plumber. When I shower... So when you want to get your uneven, crooked teeth fixed, you see an orthodontist. They're the specialists. And that's what sets Candid, the invisible, comfortable, and removable aligners above the rest. While poorly reviewed or insanely priced clear aligner companies use general dentists, Candid only works with orthodontists. And with Candid, the same orthodontist who created your plan is with you from start to finish, so you never have to wonder how you're doing. Your treatment is prescribed and closely monitored remotely by a licensed orthodontist who's an expert in tooth movement. You can book an appointment at a Candid studio near you or do everything from the comfort and convenience of your own home. The average Candid treatment is just six months. You'll start seeing results way before that, and it costs thousands less than traditional braces. And with your aligner treatment, you'll even get Candid's teeth whitening free. Candid can help you get the straighter, brighter smile you've always wanted. Right now, you can save $75 on your Candid starter kit when you get started from home. Go to candidco.com slash vision and use code vision. That's candidco.com slash vision, code vision. Candidco.com slash vision, code vision. Take advantage of this limited time offer to save. Okay, we're back. Now, I do want to get into the window grading. I just quickly want to touch on something because I feel like, look, we have to cover news that is Arsenal news. And there are certain, I'll admit, there are certain topics that I am absolutely loath to discuss because I feel like there's no way to do it without saying something that is going to drive people nuts. So I want to ideally, Paul and Clive, touch on this, but 
handle it as deftly as possible. Um, I think there's a way to handle it in the Arsenal context without handling it in the wider context. But I, I, I admit these kinds of topics make me a little nervous. So Granite Shaka is not with the Swiss team because of COVID, because he's not vaccinated. And they basically came out and said that. He's, he's opted not to take the vaccine. So let's set aside, if we can, the in, <sighs> impossible to unravel political debate around the vaccine for a minute. The whether or not he's in a vulnerable group or whether or not you should have a personal choice or not have a personal choice. I want to come at this from a slightly different angle, Paul, which is that like, COVID can be a huge disruption to the season. And there are different rules for players who are unvaccinated versus vaccinated. So if you're vaccinated and you're positive, you can basically come back really quick. If you're unvaccinated, you can't. You have to quarantine. You're going to be gone a couple of weeks. And that's, you know, um, if you're a close contact and you're vaccinated, you can play. If you're a close contact and you're not vaccinated, you can't. <clears throat> so here's the only reason I bring it up. Do you feel that as, you know, this leader, this person that the coach counts on, this person that's supposed to be a, a leader in the dressing room, helping these young kids, that's all, right? That part of the leadership is leading by example. And part of the example is, hey, if we're all vaccinated, we have a better chance to all be on the pitch every weekend. We've already seen the ramifications of COVID on the team for this season. We all need to be vaccinated, guys. Even if you don't believe in it or agree with it so much, let's all do it because as a team, it's going to give us an advantage of having more of our players on the pitch. Let, let COVID be a problem for the other team guys. And again, I'm trying to expressly set aside the ethical issues of protecting other people's lives. I'm just talking about it in the context of leadership within the dressing room. And as a senior player in the team, do you think he has some obligation to, to, to sort of, I know take one for the team sounds like a blase way to put it, but do you see where I'm going with this? That like that, not doing this. I think you're going to have a really hard job avoiding the ethics, though, because... Yeah, I'm trying, though. <laughs> if, because, like, that's why it's leadership, depending on how you view... I think we'd be shocked how many football players are not vaccinated. Not just football players, athletes. I mean, in the NFL, yeah, yeah. it's big news yeah. that teams are making their players do it, and there are players literally retiring rather than getting vaccinated. Yeah. Oh, wow. Is that real? I yeah, saw that yeah. Cam... Is Cam Newton one of them? Is, is, I'm not sure if that was He's one. unvaccinated. There was another, there's another receiver um, who basically was like, I'll retire before I'll get the vaccine. Point is, like, these are young men who feel invincible, who think they can't be hurt, and they don't want to take the vaccine, and, like, setting aside whether that's the right... I mean, I laugh <clears throat> a little bit because in the NFL... They play a sport where every single game they're turning their brain to mush and they get jabbed with like a million mystery steroids to, or like um, painkillers to be able to play. But I'm trying to, to disambiguate, whatever that word is, I'm trying to disentangle the, the two issues and distill it down to the point that if you want to be a leader in the dressing room to young men, that, you know, there's a very real fact. The teams that are going to be more vaccinated in the Premier League this season have an advantage. I know that sounds silly, they'll have an advantage because the rules favor vaccinated players for returning to the pitch quicker and being able to play. So like the reason I think you can set the ethics aside just a bit is that you have an advantage as a team if more of your players are vaccinated. And if you're a leader on the team, especially a team full of young men, you can make a really big impact by stepping up and saying, I did it. You can do it too. Um, but I realize so, that it's connected to his, his deep held beliefs. I don't know. You know, it's hard. Exactly. It's, it, it, it is a hard topic. Yeah, like who at this – like footballers are apparently obsessed with vaccination, this, that, the other, the the pluses, the minuses. They all – like they're all on their WhatsApp groups. They're all talking about it all the time. So it's not like he didn't pay any attention. He has made a decision, which I think 
personally is wrong. I think everybody should get vaccinated, et cetera, et cetera. Um, look, I don't look to Chaka for medical advice. I don't look to him for political opinions, for whatever. But I bet he has strong opinions on shit. I think we would all imagine that. Well, I mean, uh, didn't he get punished by FIFA for a political expression in a game for Switzerland, right? I mean, yeah. He's, look, he's these these are young men. They're going to have strong views, strong opinions. Um, they're go- they're very much of a group that won't put anything into their body that that will impact their performance. So whatever it is they've read, believed, shared, they're all reading it. They're all sharing it. There's a whole bunch of them who aren't vaccinated. Um, they feel very, very strongly. Um, they may be wrong. Maybe you can say they are wrong. Um, but I think when it comes to ethics and leadership, we need to just accept there's a personal choice in this. And... Um, you know, there's lots of science and studies and stuff, but in a few years' time, we'll know a lot more about all this stuff, and things will be clearer for everybody on all sides. But this, in terms of science, this is all very new. So I understand also uh, concerns that this is all new and fresh. This is their body. They're literally, he's got two, three years left in his career. I don't want to get you all fired up about that one, Elliot. He's going to have them with us and we've got a contract for them. But this is everything. This is his livelihood. They trust their bodies. They have absolute faith in their physical performance. They're not like us, probably. Um, but lots of us have concerns around vaccination, etc. We we look. None of us want to take a new vaccine, but we do it because it's the most sensible option. We think, but it's a value value judgment. We do it based on impact of other people. But if you think it's wrong for you, leadership isn't telling everybody else to take it too, because like you think it's like if you deeply feel that it's you shouldn't do this. It's not leadership to turn around. Like if you turn around and told everybody not to get vaccinated, that's bad. But if he isn't turning around telling everybody what to do because his personal view is different, like I don't know that I can knock him for that. I can knock him for being wrong, I think. Mm. I can't knock him for lack of leadership or ethics. No, I I get you, right? Like if I believe something is deeply, deeply wrong to do, I'm not a leader if I tell other people to do it. <laughs> you know what I, mean? yeah. I, I get what you're saying. It's hard, right? Because I think most of us and most, but certainly not all people listening will think getting vaccinated is the right thing to do. I accept yeah. that there are people listening screaming that they do not for a variety of reasons that range from, let's face it, frankly, like descent into madness to some potentially, you know, very reasonable opinions about things. Um, so, so I want to be clear about that. I think what I'm saying is that like, it would certainly make Arteta and Arsenal's life easier if a guy who is supposedly looked up to in the dressing room, who is a leader, was there being a, a supporter of and a role model for vaccination within the team. I understand why he's not doing it. I, well, I don't say I understand. I understand that if he doesn't believe in it, he can't do that. But it's kind of like, I know this is going to sound unfair, but if I had to be like, hmm, I wonder which prominent Arsenal player definitely doesn't want to get vaccinated. Like he'd be on the list for me. You know what I mean? I just think yeah, like judgment. I, I, I guessed as soon as I heard it, I, I thought to myself, I hadn't thought about it before. I'm like, I bet he's one of the ones who didn't get vaccinated. And like, it's not, I don't want to be one of these people that moralizes this 
so please understand that what I'm trying, like it's hard because in my mind, I can't, can only believe what you believe. And I believe that we have a duty to do it. And I realize that that could be dead wrong. I can't help that I believe that any more that he helps that b- believes that he doesn't want to do it. All okay. I'm addressing is the fact that his desire not to do it as a role model in the club, not only makes him more vulnerable to not being available to Arsenal, but potentially does the same for other players in the club. And then there is the more complex question, which I don't want to entertain on this podcast because it's not what we do, of does his decision endanger people who work at Arsenal who might be vulnerable? Does his decision to be unvaccinated make him more of a threat to the people in the club who are in more vulnerable communities? So... Like I said, this is a very complex and tricky topic. Clive, I I don't want to shut you out of it, though, which is just, I think the question that I'm trying to drill into so that we don't go into places where we are not qualified, quite frankly, and, and, and where we may be expressing opinions that are not fully formed, is more just the question of like, will it be frustrating for Mikel and the club that this very prominent guy who's a, you know, a leader is someone who's not, you know, being a, a, a voice for vaccination within the squad. Cause that would certainly make Mikel's life and Arsenal's life a lot easier this season. Yeah, it's a tough one, right? I think you have to be careful because we are, we are three men firmly in constant our middle age. And this has health ramifications for people a little bit older, right? So young people feel they're invincible. And so they have a different view. And, and so I don't, you know, so our views are naturally shaped by who we are, where we are in our lives. So, it's very sensitive. I, I'm much happier critiquing Shaka for him taking 23 hours to get the ball onto his left, onto his right foot or left foot. I'm much more comfortable doing that and worrying about when the next two-footed tackle coming because I, I can I've studied that and I can understand it a bit more. When it comes to things like this, I think this is sensitive ground, right? This is personal ground. This is where people feel and. You know, particularly you guys in the US, you've got, you know, one side of the political spectrum going one way and one side going the other way. It's incredibly complex. And I don't want to go there, if I'm honest, Elliot. I don't want to go there. I think Shaka's leadership qualities are there to be debated. There's enough things there for us to see. And and over a five-year period, when he's good, when he's bad, we can judge him without this. And... I think it's going to be a foot. When I take football, sport, athletics, whatever it is, we're asking people who we tell not to put foreign bodies into their bodies. We're asking people to do something else. They all get drug tested regularly. It's a different world. It's an elite sporting world. Every, this is this is big stuff. Right? I wouldn't like to say unless I was in it how I would feel, you know. And these guys are the, the elite of the elite. I always say this story when. When I went to the training ground, I saw these players close up, really close up. I saw them. I saw what they ate. I saw how they looked. I saw, you could see the sacrifice they have to make to look like that, to be as fit as that. I actually walked away thinking that they don't get paid enough. That, I mean, that's what I actually thought. And this is this is the except elite. for Callum Chambers, right? Who's locked <laughs> to the KFC? <laughs> Everybody else. Yeah, but I thought, crikey, that, that this is what you got to be to be the best. You know, you got to be like this. I just couldn't believe it. I couldn't believe how fit they were. And you're asking these people to then do something else to their bodies. I'm not the best person to judge, right? Who, because I've been sitting next to Callum Chambers all summer, right? So, so yeah, this is not. This is if, a, if, it, if it's any consolation, away. I'm not convinced. That because you look at, like if you're uh, Saka or you're Smith Rowe, I'm not sure you look at Chaka 
who you genuinely see as a leader, committed, et cetera, et cetera, and think, hmm, I'll get my politics or my vaccination advice from that guy. You know, there's a difference between the guy who's a leader in the dressing room and, and on the pitch and your life choices. Now, uh, uh, I, I dispute he, that it, a little bit. Well, I mean, I do hang think... On. If yeah. he's going around espousing a viewpoint on it, like if he's actively pushing one side or the other, but, you know, if if people have asked him, he says, you know, he tells them what he's doing and that's it. Like, that's his personal choice. Mostly people go with the vote of their peers. So it's who Saka's talking to in his WhatsApp group, what his friends are doing. You tend to do what your friends are doing. Um now, I know Chaka will have some impact, but uh, I don't think it's as simple as they look to him for leadership on the pitch and in the dressing room and for his vaccination advice. I wouldn't. Um, I, yeah, I dispute that. I mean, I, and let's not solve that. We won't solve it. I, I disagree. I just think that, like, when you're younger and you're in a profession and you see these elite players who are a little further along and players that you look up to and, like, they don't feel comfortable doing it, they're not willing to take the risk, that's going to make me feel more nervous about taking the risk, too. If... Oba and Laka and Shaka aren't doing it. And you're like, well, there's obviously something they feel is at risk here. Like maybe I just shouldn't take that risk. But if all of those senior players are doing it and you're like, well, they don't seem too worried about it. Again, I, th- this is tricky because as Clyde pointed out, they're in a very unique situation with their bodies and their physical fitness and their health. I just think, let's put it this way. It's a it's another complication for Mikel Arteta because the clubs that achieve a higher percentage of vaccination throughout their squad will be at an advantage of having more of their players available throughout the season. People are going to get COVID. It's just that simple. And by the way, vaccinated people are going to get COVID. But the rules for returning to work, returning to close contacts, things like that when you're vaccinated are more lenient. So there's an advantage there. So it's just a it, it's a plus expected value thing if your squad is fully vaccinated. Again, For those of you listening who are saying, this is nuts, why can't you guys just say everyone should be vaccinated? It's the ethical, moral moral right thing to do. I hear you. For those of you saying, my God, this is a personal choice. Why are you judging individuals' choice? I hear that. All I'm saying is it's a complication for Arteta that will make his season a little trickier, and it's coming from a player who he really looks to to be a central part of his message to the players within the dressing room. And that's all I'm saying. So... I think it'll be interesting. This is one of those topics in our society right now that I think there are people that feel very, very strongly about. Um, but a lot of us, and I put myself in this group, just feel like it's what I got to do. <laughs> you know, I I'm in a society. Uh, society wants me to do this. I got to do it. <laughs> it's that I think, simple. I think as a sport, if I, if I was sitting down with the players, I'd say, look, right, have a think about this because the key thing about being a footballer is being available. And this could improve your availability. If you're available, you've got a greater chance of being in the first team. You know, I saw I saw one of Discord comments. Great point. Comments. Yep, great point. I saw one of Discord comments. I think we'll talk about Gabriel, who was flying in our team, and then I think he got COVID and didn't get back in for a while. And so, in the end, you've got to be available. And and so, once someone says that to you, as an athlete, it's your choice how you want to drive your career. It really is. It's up to you. And um, you can see going forward, there's going to be contractual changes with this. You can see that, can't you? Um, I think this is something that's going to be with us for many, many years. And so new contracts, you know, different sports, not just football. You can see this being a part of this, you know. And so it's going to be a very interesting one to watch. But the best ability is availability. And that's what I would say to to a player. And then it's up to them what they do.
Yeah. All right. Well, I, I will admit that I find this difficult because I, I do not, like I, the one thing I know is I feel really comfortable and on solid footing talking about Arsenal, even when I'm wrong, talking about larger societal issues. Like I'm just a guy who kind of is trying to figure it out too, in a really complicated time. And we're all doing that. And then I think there are those people who feel like they've got it all figured out and know it completely and like, good for you. God bless you. Um, I find it complicated. I can't help it. These, these are really big topics and I find them complicated and I wish I found them as easy as some people do and as straightforward and as black and white. And maybe they are, and maybe it's my failure that I, I don't see it that way. But I, I think it is at least fair to say that this will create more complexity. So we can move on from that and get to the sort of final point here, which is grading the window overall and what we think of how Arsenal did to prepare themselves to take on the season now that preseason is over. So we did win behind closed doors against Brentford's uh, third string, 4-0. So I think it's fair to say our problems are solved, and that is good. That's encouraging. I'm, I'm expecting an instant reaction very shortly, by the way. I, I, yeah, we'll, we'll C- do that for Cedric patrons. got two goals, so that he, should... He did. Yeah, and so but, he will definitely be starting at right wing uh, yeah. against Norwich. So, look, we do have an easy game after the break, so hopefully we absolutely dominate them. But the, this squad needed surgery. We did a lot of business. I mean, Paul, where are you grade-wise on this window in the context of the fact that we spent an absolute fortune? And I think a lot of people are excited individually about the plan. We got younger. We got some interesting young talent. And yet... It is a you have to squint a bit to see if we got any better. So, what's your letter grade? A lot of spending, uh, but but you know wh- where is it all leading? <laughs> um, like I just I like to enjoy m- my summers, my transfer. Can, can I stop you? I'm sorry. Yeah, yeah. I'm ask for one thing. Yeah, let's do it this way because I think it's smarter, and okay. and I think Andrew did this as well. Uh, on the Ars cast for patrons, actually. Yeah. Letter. Let's do letter grade for incomings first. Yeah. Letter grade for outcomings second, because if you combine those two, I think it muddies the waters. So let's oh, yeah. let's do them separate. So yeah, your incoming letter grade, and then you can finish about how happy you want to be. Yeah. All right. So my non-analytical side says, you know, it feels like an A. We did. I like all the players we got. Um, I love you, Paul. Yeah. <laughs> I like I like them all. They See, were- now whatever we say, Clive is going to seem <laughs> perfectly reasonable. <laughs> yeah, um, I, I get it in each place. Um, I don't think we could have done much more. Like uh, part of it is my own expectation setting, right? I'm not assuming we can do anything. We would do anything. I know who our ownership is. So, like, I'm really happy with this window. Now, if I have to sit, take a step back, and say. You know, analytically, does this solve all our problems? Um, should we have gone and spent even more? Should we have, uh, you know, should we have got a striker? I like I have a framework for how we did this, right? And in my mind, I think the Cronkies are fucking pissed that they had to get rid of a bunch of players, uh, pay off their contracts. Uh, huge wages, huge fees, huge costs. And they came in and said to Mikel and Edu, if he was even in the room, to Mikel and said, look, we have a very small transfer budget for you if you want to keep doing the shit you did before and maybe not even a job. Or we have this other scenario in which you can have 140 or 150 million if you spend it in a in a model that allows us to lower our overall wages, hit the reset button, 
bring in players that give us a new wage structure and build for the future in the 21 to 23. You can have as many of those as you want as long as you get out the players that are already in their position. Hence, you've got four right backs. We only got the right back we wanted when we got rid of one of our right backs, right? Uh, We lost a midfielder when we um, gave back Danny Ceballos. You can get a central midfielder. We got Sambi. So there are constraints, right? There are boundaries. There are limits. Um, It's early. I'm going to enjoy my window. It's probably not an A, but I'm giving it an A on incomings because I really enjoyed it. I like it. We'll see how it pans out. It's probably a B, but fuck it. Um, in a month's time, you'll get a B out of me. Right now, it's an A. And, okay. And for outgoings, we were terrible. I'm going to give it an F because it feels like we were terrible. Now, I know this is a really tough window and nobody sold anything and blah, blah, blah. But maybe a little less barbecuing, a bit more on the phone selling things. Now, I also think mostly we're clubs... Revising what we expect to get for players, too. Sometimes yeah. you have to do that, yeah. Yeah, so... Like, there's no way I can look at outgoings, make enough excuses and say, well, that's an A2 when you consider how bad it is. Like, I, I, it, it's almost unanalyzable. Were we terrible at selling players? Were, were players terrible at moving out? Is it the fact that deals done by earlier administrations um, and earlier decisions hamstrung everybody so much it just wasn't doable because... Like, you can look across the market and say, yeah, we're not actually that different to anybody else. But anyway, we're our, you, you can't say our outgoings are anything but a disaster and that we're not going to end up eating most of this. And I'm sorry, I can't find enough. I can't find a rationale that proves to me that it's anything more than an... Plus, I'm giving American grades, right? So, like... There's always great inflation, yeah. Well, it, 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 yeah, inflation doesn't even cover it. Like, my daughter gets A's in subjects... Like, I'm, like, reasonably good at writing stuff and stuff. I never got an A in an English essay in my class. Never. No, nothing I could do with it. Like, that's how it was where I, I yeah. grew up. It, it, it's funny because, like, uh, at Princeton, they grade on a curve. And the curve is basically published. So you knew, like, 15% of the class would get A's. And then, like, 33% would get B's. And, like, 33% would get C's and so on and so forth. Yeah. <clears throat> and I was like... Well, I can have no life and graduate Princeton with maybe an A minus, or I can have a good life and <laughs> skate by with a B plus doing very, very little work. And so, uh, you know, that was sort of the beginning of my understanding of, of data. So I'm giving <laughs> it an American A. Okay. Yeah. yeah I, I got, I, I'll take a Princeton B plus. Um, so, all right. Well, Clive, what's your, what's your incoming and outgoing grading? Uh, incoming, I said B yesterday, so I'll probably stick with it. Although I think, um, it's hard to judge because obviously we know these. a lot of these are not now signings. I think the incomings, you know, I wanted seven, we got six. And probably I would have liked eight in a dream world. But the dream world needed to be, you know, financed by the outgoings, which I probably would give like a D. But I don't blame anyone for this um, because we're sitting 0.0 goals, 20th in the league. And the players you want to move on can't get into our team. So why do you think people are going to run up to us and say, we'll have him, we'll have him. Um, we're not in a strong place for that at the moment as a club. We have some young sort of um, British players or English players. Um, we had Maitland-Niles, we had a story there. I think <laughs> I think strangely, he may end up having a, 
a decent season, becoming more valuable as the season goes on. Nelson went out. Eddie should have gone out, but he started to look at his wallet at the wrong time and blew that one. And that's a huge mistake for him. You know, and I think he should be at Crystal Palace now and doing something in London. And he didn't take it. So big mistake. That's not the club's fault. The club had they'd, they'd already sorted out the offer and that's been agreed. It was down to the players' personal terms. That's a shame. Will El Nenny still go? Potentially. Kalashny is all about the where's my money? And I and I would like to see Cedric go if I wanted to you if he went to Turkey as well and that was done. So we still got a little bit of hope there. Uh, it does leave the squad slightly skinny, but the outgoing, I mean, the one that I feel a slight regret about is um, Lacazette and Eddie not going and uh, Tammy Abraham's coming in. I think we'd all feel differently about the window if that was to happen. Yep. I'm, not, I'm not saying Abraham is the perfect striker. We don't know, but I think he offers something we haven't got. He's got presence, he's got size, he's got penalty box presence and aerial ability. And he would allow other players to blossom next to somebody like that. And that's a very simple deal for us at a good price. He wanted to be here. I, I feel that's a real miss. And that's down to the fact of previous regimes. We spent nearly 50 million quid on Lacazette then brought in his mate six months later. We've got him on £180,000 a week. No other club in the world is going to pay him that money at this period. No one else is going to do it. And we're stuck with it. And so... We can't move on. And so the next phase of Arsenal, as you well know, is that is that position that will come contractually. It'll be presented to us next summer. And that's just a shame. So in Arteta's regime so far, I don't think he's brought it forward yet. Is that right? He hasn't brought it forward. No. And you are defined by your outcome when you do all your build-up work. Those guys in the front end of the pitch define you. You know, and... Uh, he hasn't been able to define himself in that forward areas or any coach because of what we've done historically, what we paid out. He signed off on Aubameyang, so before someone shouts at me. So he signed off on Aubameyang's contract, but he's not been able to buy because he can't move any other strikers out. So it's a bit of a, oh, if only we could have got that, and if only could we, Shaka have moved on or we could have had a, a slightly different face in centre midfield. That would make us all feel like A-A-A-A-A everywhere else. But we all know that. It's not yeah, gonna it would have helped. <laughs> it's not going to happen in this, in this market. It hasn't happened for anybody, by the way. It hasn't happened for anybody. No one's had the perfect window, despite all of the the bombastic signings at Manchester United and City getting Grealish or the rest of it. They didn't have a perfect window. They've still got luggage in the, in the back room. They haven't done all their positions. You know, and so it's going to be interesting to watch. You know, Manchester United still got Fred and McTominay, right, despite all of this. So it's still got work to do for all these clubs. And it feels like Arsenal just got a bit more work than most. Yeah. I mean, can I ask you just quickly, does Tobin Heath uh, make this an A-plus window, though? Well, yeah, fair enough. I mean, it's a shame Tim's not here. We know why he's not here, because he's doing work on this right now. But I was watching the women this week, and they they look good. They look really energetic. They look good. I, I really want to know what Tim feels around how we're playing in comparison to last season. The squad's looking better. They look so fit and pressy. It's going to be interesting to see when they play Chelsea this weekend, how they get on. Mm. Um, so uh, my, my, my incoming, so here's the funny thing, right? I hear a lot about system and system fit and you got to buy players that fit systems and all this stuff. I think at times, we underrate 
talent. I know that sounds silly, but there is no substitute for talent. If you look at the teams that dominate, it's not that they just have great system fit players. They have insane talent. And once you have insane talent, boy, oh boy, is it easy to find a system that works. Let me tell you. Pep Guardiola plays ridiculously weird systems and players play all over the place. You know why it works? It's not because he has the perfect system fit. There's no player in the world that's a fit for Pep's system. It's because his players are insanely talented and they've spent billions to get there. And so if you look at the teams that thrive, they tend to be teams that have a hell of a lot of talent. Even if you go back to Leicester's title, right? And say, oh, well, Ranieri just had the perfect system. You know, sit back, defend, counterattack, it fit everybody. Turns out that Vardy, Mares, um, Chilwell, Conte, um, I'm forgetting a bunch of good guys now because I'm in a memory hole for some reason. But like, they, they had a lot of really elite, elite talent. Talent that's gone on to like win the World Cup and win Premier Leagues and win Champions Leagues. So yeah, talent matters. And I think we have sort of fallen into this trap because, you know, Arteta wants to use Oba on the left and he wants Lacazette to drop into midfield and he wants the right center back to stay, or right fullback to stay in a three and then the left bombs on and then this guy drops in here and the central midfielder becomes a left back and like that's all cool. But You know what makes that system look a lot smarter? When the players are all very, very talented. And I just think that there has been an erosion of the level of talent. So I look at what we brought in and I say, did we add enough talent? And it's mixed for me. It's mixed. I think Sambi Lakanga looks like someone who could be a very big talent. I think Odegaard is clearly a big talent. I think Tomiyasu and Ramsdale and uh, Tavares to some extent, that's a lot more up for debate. I think Ben White is... A tricky one for me because he's a very talented footballer who, as to whether or not he can play center back at an elite level, like we'll just see. The point is, I think the incomings for me are a B. We got younger. We added some talent. We added some more speculative talent. We addressed some holes in the squad, but I don't think we made the first 11 better enough with the money we spent. I'm giving it the benefit of the doubt with a B. Much like Paul, I might be at CC minus a month from now. Um, but I, I think you could have spent this money. I certainly think the Ben White and Ramsdale money, there is a world where maybe that goes to something that makes us a lot better, both short and long term. But I may be proved you massively still- wrong about that. That's just an open question for us. I, I think it's the selling that for me is is the <clears throat> sort of D plus. I, I give it some credit because I think we, we cashed in on Joe Willick and got more money than he's worth. By the way, I, he's, he's, I mean, the season's three games old, but he's been terrible. Um, and he's only played two. So that may turn around. So just to be clear, <laughs> I realize that's early returns. Um, I think the Granite Shaka thing is the one that obviously is the black mark. You guys have said it. I totally agree with it. I think if we had bought a really good central midfielder to replace Granite Shaka, I'd feel a lot better about things. I think Balogun had to go out and loan and he didn't. I don't know what the plan's going to be for that. Maybe someone else has more info on it. Um, in Kedia. I mean, I, I think the way, you know, we, I'm not going to relitigate the Ganduzi situation, but we, we, th- our ability to turn that into very little money is not great. The Saliba situation is deeply, deeply concerning to me. Um, so, yeah, there, there's just talent is what matters. And I think we kept too many players who are not talented enough for where we want to go and leaned into too many players who are not bad, but not, don't have a ceiling that is elite talent. And so ultimately, if you look at Arsenal right now and you look at the entire squad, just look at the squad 
and overlay it next to the teams that we're in the thick of, West Ham, Villa, Leicester, Everton, Spurs, and overlay it against the teams we'd like to catch up to, Liverpool, Chelsea, United, City. Does our talent right now look like it will become that second group, or does it look much more analogous to that first group? And, you know, I know which I think. I think everybody can draw their own conclusion, but I'll finish, Paul, by asking you and Clive that question. Just look at the talent, overlay it, and I think it's pretty clear we all see where the real big talent is. Smith Rowe, Saka, Martinelli, Odegaard. Do you see us having added the injection of talent that can grow to look more like that second group, that top four group I listed? Or does it look like at the moment we still are a team that is the talent level of more of the next tier? I mean, I think we look like the talent level that would get us to to fifth. Um, But I don't think it was reasonable from where we were to where we're trying to get to um, that we would make that transition at this stage. I mean... There's a really good starting 11 um, when you look across. The, I'm just looking <clears throat> at the players we have in each position. Our our first 11 is really good. It, the The reality is we're going to have to go through a couple of cycles. Uh, one more major window next summer will be when we flush out the remainder of of the debris we have to get rid of. And then it'll be the squad uh, if we make the right moves that we want, it's nearly there. Um, so, like, I, I have a lot of patience. I have too much patience for other people's patience. Um, if uh, I want us to stay consistent, because if we change directions, and we we've basically just majorly changed direction, and and uh, but it compounds on top of the fact that we had Smith Rowe, Saka, we have Martinelli. Um, and that we had on loan Odegaard and we got him back. I mean, there's 35 million of our 100 and whatever just to keep the player we had from last season that I've already kind of factored factored into one of our players. uh, Gabriel uh, Magliais, uh, my own uh, pronunciation. And you look across the team and you say, well, we were pretty young already, and so, although we've just changed direction in terms of transfer, we've built on the good part that was there. And so, I've got some level of patience, as I say, probably more patience than other people's patience with my patience can tolerate. Um, I like the direction we're going in. No, we're not. We haven't built something for top four yet. But next year, with the striker, uh, with a few more additions, uh, that's when you begin to see a squad that will mature over a couple of years, I hope, that can take us to going for that number four spot instead of the number five, six spot. Clive? Yes, it's an interesting one. So I remember when Guendouzi first burst onto the scene and we saw him play and we did a, I think we did an Indus spotlight on him and we were all building statues, right? So it's difficult to gauge young player development. When Smith Rowe popped up on Boxing Day, I thought, I know this player. Yeah, he's a good player. Let's see what he does. A few months later, he's on Instagram, number 10 shirt, getting with a new contract. Didn't see that coming. (laughs) It's difficult to predict where young people end up, but that's the fun for me. The fun is, you know, seeing someone like Saka, a young kid, playing wing back, 
and suddenly, you know, playing the Euro final at, at 19 years of age. The explosion of youth could be so, so, so exciting. And we just got to get on that journey and get with it. Because right? I think a lot of these players have the core football talent to really be something. My worry is not them. They will be who they are if they're, if they're deployed appropriately. And I think some of those people were protected at Man City in particular to make sure they're here for five years, lest we don't have to ruin them in five minutes. Right? So, so don't get too strung up about that team selection at Man City. There are people being protected. My issue is the next phase, right? So um, Kia said something this week that triggered my brain about Willian. And he said to about Willian, he came for one project and the project wasn't there. And that got me thinking, and Andrew Allen stole it from me today, actually. But he said, you know, Willian came to be, you know, Champions League in three years, was he was told, whether you believe it or not. What did they say to Thomas Party? Now, when he joined, he wasn't thinking he was going to be part of a youth project. That seems to be something that's appeared quite recently. Now, we know Shaka signed a contract, so he's probably on board. Leno, is, is he on board? So those risk mitigators I keep talking about, the people that are going to carry this, Aubameyang, Lacazette, at their stage of their career, much like when we lost Thierry Henry, he didn't want to go for a youth project. Are these guys on board? So we know that we're not going to do anything unless Aubameyang plays really, really well. We know we need Chuck and Pike to play really well. For me, there's an unease about those players' commitment to the programme. There is. There's been speculative rumours about them leaving. Are they on board? So the next phase is actually a really important phase because we need the, the, we've got the young talent. They're going to develop into something, we hope. But who are the solid characters? Now, if Bam Young's on board and fully engaged, great. We get another year of him. Shaka, we've got a year of him. We know what we're going to get up to a point. Party, if he's on board, he's our best midfielder, great. Leno, flaky at the moment. You know, is he on board? We need these. We need more of these guys to mitigate the risk of playing young players continuously week on week. That's my worry to this whole project. Have we got enough long poles in the tent? Have we got enough teachers? Have we got enough leaders? Have we got enough committed senior professionals of quality to carry this project along? And that's my biggest fear at the moment. Mm. Well, I think if we're being fair, and God knows that's the first thing that crosses my mind, um, every player looks a little less exciting and a little less talented when the manager is flailing and the team is losing. And every player looks a lot more talented and a lot more exciting when the manager is succeeding and the team is winning. Trying to disentangle player struggles from managerial struggles and vice versa is hard. And anytime you evaluate the talent in the team, like that's difficult. I mean, would we have said that Chelsea didn't have a lot of talent when they were languishing mid-table under Lampard last season? I don't think we would have. And then Tuchel came in and he took that talent and he did what he probably should do with a, a squad of that talent, quite frankly. So... I, I find it difficult. I, I think that there is a talent deficit in the, in the team still. Certainly a prime age talent deficit. Do we have some very, very, very good players who are post-prime? We do. Do we have some extraordinary players who are pre-prime? We do, and we needed that. I worry that maybe the issue now is simply that while we wait for some of those young players to develop into the elite talent we need and move out those aging players who are aging out of being that elite talent, 
we have a gap in the middle of players who right now are elite talent that you would say right now, top of their game, top of their powers, ready to take us up another level. So, you know, maybe this is a case where there's going to be some short-term pain for long-term gain. And as Tomiyasu and White and Tavares and Lakanga and Smithrow and Odegaard and Saka and Martinelli all moved from 22 to 23 to 24 to 25, we see the fortunes of this team massively increase. Whether they all stick around for that and we have the patience for that and it doesn't get blown up, that's the hard thing about football. Because as you may know, the news cycle is quite short. But we will cover it. And we will continue to bring you hashtag content because we love you and appreciate you joining us for these complex conversations. The funny thing is, people don't tear each other apart nearly as much over winning and losing football games as they do over transfers and this kind of stuff. And so these are hard times to talk about Arsenal because people feel very strongly about them. Some people want every transfer to be looked at as brilliant. Some people are the opposite. Some people are in the middle. But it is a polarizing moment for the club, especially given the position we're in. So I thank you for indulging us in having these opinions that you may agree with or hate being willing to come talk to us. You know, I always say this on Twitter, but I'll say it again. Anybody who wants to come to me and tell me why my opinion is bad, I love it. I want to hear it. If you're saying, here's why I disagree. Anyone that wants to come to me and just say, you're an idiot, it's totally, you're right. But I just don't see how that helps. So like, would love to hear feedback on the merits. What are we getting wrong? How can we look at it differently? If all you want to do is yell and say you're an idiot, I mean, of course, it's your right. We're putting this out there. You can react that way. I get it. I, ju I just hope that we can have those conversations in a way where maybe I'll learn something. Maybe I'll come back on the next pod and say, hey, account anonymous12345 on Twitter said something and it really resonated with me. So, you know, that's what I hope for. And uh, we appreciate you being here. Paul's on Twitter. Pause my pants. Thanks, Paul. Woohoo. Clive's on Twitter. Clive PFC. Thanks, Clive. Thank you very much. Um, I think you had one more point. Well, it can wait, I, I suppose. <laughs> I just noticed, sorry, I just saw the chat. I apologize. <laughs> I, I suppose it can wait. No, I'm going to say it. Now you say got it, me, yeah. right? I think towards the end of Wenger's regime, he, I think he manipulated the squad into his strengths. I think he was really good at meshing people of various talents, elite talents, into one contiguous unit. And he's the only person who could coach the team towards the end. He was just, it was his team. And I, I said something earlier about the team lacking teachers, Arteta's team lacking teachers. I'm wondering if he's developing a squad which highlights his strength because I think he is a teacher or he sees himself as a teacher. And he's been manipulating a situation where he is in charge. He is His skill sets are superior on this particular aspect. I'm just thinking it through. I'm thinking, well, you know what, that's great. But you've got four big games, mate, coming up. You need to do something. Otherwise, no... You'll be teaching. You'll be teaching yourself, right? So I think <laughs> he and I will have the same job. <laughs> you'll be teaching yourself, and I, I do. It's something to watch out for: how people empower themselves in organisations. They manipulate and develop organisations for their superpowers, and it's something to be wary of. Sort of the fear I feel around the lack of risk mitigation in this squad is all loading onto him, and that's bringing us back to where we were with Wenger, and that does not please me. Yeah, no, I hear you. That That is a concern. Look, we'll leave it there. Every single person who gives to our fundraiser will get a mention on this podcast. Every single one. We'll start doing that on the next episode. It is so just unbelievably cool how many people have given and how much you've given in the span of about two days. So we can yell at each other about transfers. Hell, you can call me an idiot all you want if you're willing to contribute to the Arsenal Foundation. Like, what a wonderful, wonderful thing. So again, you can go to arsenalvisionpodcast.com forward slash donate and uh, takes you right to the platform. No fees, tax-free. Just give because 
It's a great cause, and it connects us to the club in, in the most powerful way. Anyway, uh, thank you for being here. We love you. And we will talk to you after Arsenal 10, Norwich 0. No.